introduce um, our speaker uh, this week. As I said, I was on vacation. So um, Kristen and I, when we got married, um, we were a part of a church. We lived in Overland Park, and uh, we were part of a church called Heartland. And after a couple of years there, um, we decided to move back to my hometown, which was Liberty. And so we bought a house, and, and we kind of found out that they were in the process, the church we were at was in the process of starting a church in Liberty. And so we kind of moved in and uh, met these people that we were going to start this church with that we had never met before. And the day that we moved into our house in Liberty, um, this guy that's going to speak was standing on my doorstep uh, ready to help us move in. And he was a part of the, the team that was uh, helping to launch that church. He worked at Hallmark at the time, but um, he became just a dear friend uh, to me. Um, and his wife, Norm, is here too, and their kids. I had taught some of their uh, kids back when I was a teacher in Liberty. And he's really a guy that's walked with me throughout all of my adulthood and has probably been the most influential man in my life the last 20 years. So uh, after helping to start that church, uh, Liddell actually went on staff at another church called North Heartland um, in Kansas City, kind of in the Berry Road area. And when we were talking about planting Wellspring, um, Liddell was somebody who really came alongside me and helped me process that, encouraged me, um, that it was something that, uh, he felt like I was equipped and called to do and, um, and ended up doing an internship, uh, at his church there in Kansas city. And, uh, so he's just been somebody that's been just a powerful person in my life that God has used to, to be a mentor to me. And so I'm excited for you to hear what he has to share this morning. Um, so let's bring up Liddell Thomason. It's kind of interesting to hear Bob talk about what he just said because, in a way, there's a there's a vision that's. Um, I gotta figure out what I'm. You got me all confused, Bob. I can't remember what I'm doing here. Um, hold on. When she not have technical error here? Hold on, just a second. I'll get this figured out. Uh, but it was a vision that Bob. Um, has had for for years about you know what he wanted to do at this church and um, I'll get it here. Hold on, come on, please come up. There we go. Um, still not right. <laughs> Hold on. There we go. We're good. So looking out over the over the crowd here, it's almost like a dream come true in a way. It really is. Um, because Bob and I prayed for you guys for years. And I was thinking when you were sharing that devotional how you and I shared a lot of that, the highs and the lows and the pain and all that. And so if I get a little emotional, it's because we go back a long way, and uh, there's a lot of cool things that God did in our lives, and we just shared those throughout our, our history. So, okay, let me get it together here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, well, today, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 8, because we're going to look at that for just a little bit. Um, and this is a story about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, so I'm going to read, starting in John chapter 8, the beginning there, um, and you can just follow along with me. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, and while all the people were gathered around him, he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in, adult, in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone her, to stone the woman. Now what do you say? 
And they were using this question, it says, to trap him in order to, for a basis of accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to him, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at, those, and at this, those who heard, those who began to hear went away one at a time, the oldest first, and only Jesus was left. And the woman was standing still, still there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There's probably nowhere else in the Bible that you can find a better illustration of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ than in this story of the woman caught in adultery. Teacher, the Pharisees say, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What say you? Now, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about the scribes and the Pharisees and all their evil motives. But, but for today, I want to focus on one aspect of this account. I want, I want to focus on a question that's so rarely asked when this story is read. And the question is this. Who is the woman in the story? Well, the answer may surprise you because she's you. And you. And you. She is us. Because you see, we've all been caught in our sins, haven't we? we all, all of us, men and women alike, are in the same moral level. We're all equal. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have a propensity to sin. None of us is righteous according to the Bible. Not even one of us seeks after God truly on our own. And so therefore, we're all sinners in need of a Savior, aren't we? We all are. Just like the woman who was caught in adultery. And if we just had eyes to see this truth more often, that we're sinners in need of Savior, then, then we, would, we would more humbly eliminate all that self-righteousness and, and, and condemnation that sometimes reigns in our hearts. But I have another question I want to ask you. It's a similar one, but slight, slightly on the other side of the coin. Who are the scribes and the Pharisees in this story? Well, guess what? They're you and I again. They're you and I. That same judgmental attitude that we find in the scribes and Pharisees lives in our hearts today, doesn't it? Same, same thing. Because sadly, this is why for so many Christians, following Jesus has just become a bunch of joyless drudgery and self-condemnation and judgmentalism. Because really, if we were honest with ourselves, we're just like the scribes and the Pharisees, aren't we? Now, I want you to contrast that for a minute with Jesus. Contrast that. When you read the book of John, this is what it says. It says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law has given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus was full of grace and truth, the Bible says. He knew how to call someone out when they were in sin. That's, that's the truth part, okay, of this grace and truth equation. And yet he could also offer incredible forgiveness and restoration. That's the grace part, right? And that's how he handled this woman that he found on the ground being about ready to be stoned by, by the Pharisees. But, but what about us? I mean, how are we doing balancing the, the truth and the grace thing? How, how are we doing? Well, I don't know about you, but, but I find myself and many other well-meaning Christians 
pretty much getting the, the truth side of things. We, we get truth. I mean, we get all the thou shalt nots. I mean, we, we, know, we know what we shouldn't do, right? Would everybody agree? Most of you know what the thou shalt nots are. And a lot of you have heard that. And we know, for instance, that adultery, along with a thousand other bad behaviors, is sin, right? It's not news. Yeah, we get the truth part, but we don't get the grace part very well. You see, it seems to be that no matter how amazing grace is, we have, a trouble, we have trouble grasping it and believing it. And because we have trouble believing it, we, the way Jesus demonstrating it, we have trouble living it out. And because we have trouble living it out, we have trouble sharing it. And extend it to others because you know what? We're all about truth. But we're not much about grace. But what if it could be different? I mean, what if we could speak the truth in love as the scriptures tell us? What, what if we could approach those people who have fallen into sin like this woman in the story? What if we could approach her with a gracious way? With graciousness. Forgiving and not, but yet at the same time, not making light of the sin, right? I mean, what if here at Wellspring, what if, what if this church could be characterized by a community that, where you could bring your brokenness and, and I could bring my brokenness, knowing that we would treat each other with truth and grace, just like Jesus did this woman caught in adultery? I mean, what's, gonna, what's it going to take to make that happen? Well, that's kind of what I want to talk about today, because today we're going to talk about what is the true meaning of grace as it's seen in the life of Jesus, okay? Now, um, one thing the Bible makes very clear is that in order to be a gracious person, if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to be a, a, a man or a woman full of grace, then you have had to experience God's grace first. You can't extend grace if you haven't experienced grace. In other words, you've got to have grace in order to give it, right? You cannot give away what you've never truly possessed. And so the key to being a really gracious person like Jesus is to understanding and experiencing God's grace in your own life, okay? That's the key. So if the key is to, to being a gracious person is to experience grace personally, then I think we need to understand what grace is to begin with, right? And so that's where we're going to start. We're going to start by defining what is grace, now, many of you have heard that term before, right? I mean, everybody knows what grace is. But I will tell you this. In the Bible, you will find all kinds of uh, forms of grace. And I'm going to focus on just two of them today, okay? We're going to look at two aspects or two forms of grace as we look into our message. And, the, and those two forms are this. We're going to talk about saving grace and enabling grace. Saving grace and enabling grace. So let's, talk, let's start with saving grace first. When I talk about saving grace, I'm really focusing on how a person begins their relationship with God. Like right when you begin coming to know who Jesus is. Because saving grace means this. This, this is the definition. You'll see it up here on the screen. Saving grace is God doing for you what you do not deserve and cannot do for yourselves with no strings attached. Let me say that again. Saving grace is God doing for you what you... Do not deserve and cannot do for yourself, no strings attached. Because saving grace is, the, is God's favor, who he, what, he, what he freely gives to all without expecting anything in return. It's God treating us better than we deserve, not because of anything that we've done or, or promised to do, okay? And not, 
because of anything God's wanting to do for us. With saving grace, there truly is no strings attached. Now, I don't know about you, I've heard the term karma, I really don't know that much about it, but what I do know is that saving grace is the opposite of the concept of karma. Okay? If you know anything about karma, again, I'm not an expert on it, so just, uh, just know that this is all I know, is that karma is all about getting what you, what? Deserve. It's about getting what you deserve. With karma, whatever you do comes back to you, right? For example, I mean, if you commit road rage out there somewhere on, on I-29, or you, you're abusive to your children, then you can expect some evil retaliation coming back on you, right? That's how karma works. But that's exactly the opposite of how grace works. Because grace is about getting what you don't deserve, okay? Like God's forgiveness and mercy. And grace is about not getting what you do deserve, like God's wrath and punishment. It's just the opposite of this concept of karma. So now, whenever Christians think about saving grace, it's almost always in the context of our need for forgiveness and salvation from sin, which the Bible calls falling short, by the way. Sin is just falling short. It's like shooting an arrow, just falling short. And so it's always in the context of our disobedience and rebellion. So in context... Grace means, listen carefully here, God giving us or saving us without us having to do anything whatsoever or promising to do anything whatsoever to make amends for all our, our, our mistakes and our failings. Now, one of the classic passages in the scripture that talks about this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Let me read it. It says, it's God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's the gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. Now, let me illustrate this for a minute. Um, When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day pay for that, we call it a what? We call it a wage, right? You work, you get paid. It's a wage. And, And when a person competes against an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, we call that a, a prize, right? And when a person receives appropriate recognition, like on your job for long service or, or for, for high achievement, we call that an award. But listen to this. When a person is not capable of earning a wage, cannot win a prize, and deserves no award, yet receives a gift anyway, you know what we call that? Grace. Grace. God's unmerited favor with no strings attached. Now, suppose I want to give away some money today. Y'all didn't know I was going to do that, right? Y'all form a line right here, and I'll take care of you. I got, I got my money here. got my dollar bill. Okay. Um, but before I hand this over, and you are the lucky person, by the way, today. Uh, what was your name, Eric? Oh, Eric. Eric. Eric, you're the lucky person today. But I want to ask you a few questions, Eric, before I gift you this, this dollar bill, okay? Uh, Eric... Um, did you work to earn this money? Uh, no. Okay, you didn't, did you? Uh, Eric, uh, did you, like, achieve something? or did, Should I give, is this a prize if I give it to you? Oh, no, I didn't. You didn't do anything, right? right. No, it, it's not an award, it's not a prize, it's not a wage, it's nothing, right, Eric? Right. Okay, that's, I just want to make that clear. It's a gift, isn't it? Yeah. So, Eric, you win the prize today. You get the lucky dollar bill. How about that? That's my gift to you, brother. Okay. <laughs> Now, here's the funny thing about this, friends. 
That's exactly how God's saving grace works. Eric didn't do anything. Don't tell me you did now. You didn't do a thing, did you? I gave that to you as a gift. And just as I gave him that gift, Jesus did all the work for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He took our shame. And now he is standing on the throne, just like I stand here today, freely offering the gift of salvation to all who receive it. Come as you are, he says, with all your past mistakes, and simply take the gift of salvation he is offering us as a token of his great love for you. That's grace. That's saving grace. So I think the obvious question is, have you received God's saving grace? Have you received it? Because if not, then you're missing the very first step of what it means to be a gracious person. Because you know what? You can't become a gracious person if you haven't received grace yourself. Because you can't truly be gracious like Jesus if you've never experienced. You've got to have it in order to give it. Now let's talk about the second type of grace. Okay, we've talked about saving grace. Let's talk about enabling grace. Enabling grace is a little different. Um, not only do believers in Christ experience saving grace, but we all, if we know Jesus, experience something called enabling grace. Well, what is enabling grace? Well, let's look at the definition for a minute. <clears throat> enabling grace. It's God supplying us with the power to live Christ-honoring lives and to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, enabling grace helps us to fulfill all the callings and the, and the expectations God has on us. And it's called enabling grace because without it, we would not be able to do what God asks us to do. Now, in the scriptures, we find another classic scripture that talks about enabling grace. Let's look at it here real quick. Uh, Philippians 2.13 says this, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now, I brought a little, little prop here today um, to illustrate enabling grace. Now, we all know this is just a plain old ordinary glove, and, and you know, you can use it for all different kinds of things. You know, you can point at people. You know, you can op- open a window with it. Uh, um, you, can, you can throw a stick at a dog. Um, you, you can shake somebody's hand, wave goodbye. Uh, you can maybe, you know, pat somebody on the back. I mean, you name it. You could do it, anything amazing with this glove, right? And you're all looking at me like, you're an idiot, <laughs> you fool. <laughs> really, you, you know it. You know the answer. Of course you can't. You can't do anything with this glove. It's just this limp piece of leather, right? This glove is entirely useless unless my hand is inside of it. Unless my hand enables it. Because what this glove does is directly related to what's inside the glove, right? You could say, you could say it this way. Whatever possesses the glove determines what the glove performs, right? Or you could say it this way. Whoever activates the glove determines the activity of the glove, right? Or you can even say it one more way. The occupation of the glove is entirely based upon how the glove is being occupied. Does that sound familiar? Actually, I'm quoting Scripture when I say this. Without me, the glove can do nothing. Without my hand, the glove can do nothing. Jesus said this very same thing in John chapter 15. He said this, For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And that's the truth about enabling grace, because you and I cannot do anything, and I mean anything apart 
from, from God's grace enabling us to do so, right? We can try to do things in our own strength, but that's like me trying to pick up this water with this glove, you know? It, it just, it just, you just can't do it. You just can't do it. Some of you think I can't, don't you? Um, this glove has to rely upon the hand to accomplish anything. And so, therefore, we have to rely upon the Holy Spirit to, to accomplish the things that God wants us to do in our life. So the question I want to ask you again is this. Have you learned what it means to rely on the Holy Spirit? Or are you trying to live life in your own strength? My favorite verse in the Bible is, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And, I, I, and I, so the second step to become a gracious person is to understand enabling, enabling grace because you've got to have it in order to give it. You can't, you can't offer grace if you've never experienced grace. So without enabling grace, you and I are powerless as this empty glove. So what have we said so far? Let's just quickly push pause and summarize. We've said this. we said saving grace is God doing what we do not deserve and cannot do for ourselves, forgiving us and accepting us in spite of our sin with no strings attached. And enabling grace is God supplying us with all the ability we need to live Christ-honoring lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that weren't enough, we could stop right there. But I've got two more things I want to share with you. I've got two amazing things that, that, that I, I feel like God's shown me and shown many people over the years about grace that are so amazing, so amazing, that when, when they're all finished, you just say, wow, I, I, can't, I can't believe that grace is really this cool. And I want, I want to share two of them. This, this is the first one. The first amazing fact about grace, besides saving and enabling grace, is this, that grace works exactly the opposite of the way religion works. Let me say it again. Grace works the exact opposite of the way religion works. How many of you have ever heard of a, a guy named C.S. Lewis? Okay, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Abolition of Man, and he listed in there eight commandments that are common to all world religions. Here they are. Don't harm others in word or deed. Honor your parents. Provide for your children. Be honest in your dealings with others. Don't steal. Don't have sex with another person's spouse. Care for those who are in need. And do the right thing even if it costs you. Those are common to all world religions. Did you know that? And in addition to all world religions saying the same basic thing about how people ought to live, Lewis points this out, that all major religions also say that you can't live up to those standards, that you can't do it. Every world religion acknowledges that there's a gap between what we should be and where we really are. Does that make sense? And because there's a gap and because you and I don't live up to the standard, every religion says that humans are at odds with God or the universe or whatever transcendent being that that one world religion says exists. So every religion, Lewis points out, prescribes a particular way to deal with this gap, okay, and to make peace with divine justice except one. Except Christianity. Because in every religion except Christianity, salvation is something that is attained by what? Human effort. Human effort. In Christianity, salvation comes by grace, by God doing for us what we do not deserve and cannot do for ourselves with no strings attached. And I find that quite amazing. But you know what? There are folks in here, including some I know back at our church in, in Kansas City, that are confused about this. 
Because, yeah, they say they believe in grace. And yeah, they sing about grace. They, they sing hymns and they sing songs about grace. And they claim to believe it. But in reality, what, here's what they're believing. The grace plus plan. The grace plus plan. They believe, they say they believe in God's unconditional love and grace, but they feel like they have to do their part as well in order to receive salvation. But you know, that belief is not in the Scripture. That belief is not what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible says. It says, our salvation is not based on Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus speaking tongues, or Jesus plus anything else. Our salvation is based on Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. It's, it's, it's simply religion if you're trying to do it in human effort. So the first thing about, one of the first amazing things about grace is that it is exactly opposite of the way religion works. But then there's another thing, and this is the one that, that I get the most excited about, I think, and that's this. Grace cannot be exhausted. Grace cannot be exhausted. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What if you knew you could sin and get away with it? Bob's about ready to run me out of the church here. Now, before you think I'm crazy, I'm actually paraphrasing Paul's question in Romans 6. This is what he says. Well, then, what should, you, what, uh, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? That's basically what, what Romans 6 is saying. And you might find Paul's you know, words a little bit more acceptable than what I started with, but, but here's... When I say, what if you knew you could sin and get away with it? I don't mean that God doesn't know that, it, that you sinned or, or that there wouldn't be some earthly consequence. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. What if you could sin and God would not punish you for it? What if you could sin and God would not punish you for it? Now, I know that might seem like a radical statement to some, but here's what you need to know. That Paul's statement in Romans 6, 1, when he said, should we go on sinning so that God can show us more and more grace, comes right on the heel of his scandalous comment in Romans 5, 20 that says, when we sin, God gives more grace. This is what Romans 5, 20 says in, in its entirety. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became what? More abundant. Another passage, another way of saying this, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God doesn't punish Christians like some people think. You might say, well, how's, what do you mean, Liddell? I mean, I thought punishment was still a part of the Bible. No, listen carefully. The Bible says the more you sin, the more God's grace abounds. And what Paul is saying in Romans 5 is that you can't outsend the grace of God as a believer in Jesus Christ. Whenever you sin, you, you will always find more grace and more forgiveness. Now, I want to share a story with you. A few years ago, I don't know how many of you have heard a guy named Steve Brown, but he had a Christian talk show that was syndicated, and it was based on this statement, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And in his talk show, he would try to represent examples of flawed Christians, people who had lives that were kind of messed up, but they still loved Christ and remained committed to him. And one of the most controversial things he did on this talk show was that he had a policy of giving away free sins 
Hmm, sounds interesting, doesn't it? Free sins. In other words, when people would call for the first time, he'd give them three free sins. And if they called on a cell phone, he'd give them six free sins. And after a while, people got a little irritated by this. In fact, one lady called in, so irate, called the station manager and said that she did not appreciate this free sin giveaway policy. And so after her and a bunch of number, uh, numbers caller, callers had expressed their anger towards Steve Brown's policy, the producer, Eric, gave out this statement. He says this, It's a joke, people. Lighten up. Steve can't give away free sins. Only God does that. Now, Steve, Steve Brown, in his book, Scandalous Freedom, actually writes about this account, and this is what he says. Well, it really wasn't a joke. Or at least the joke had a serious point. I, Steve, cannot give away free sin, but God can. Because Jesus took care of my sin on the cross, and because of that, all of my sin is forgiven. And in that sense, all sins are free. All sins are free. Now, you may have to wrestle with this idea a little bit, that you cannot exhaust God's grace. But here's the implication, and listen carefully. If you are a Christian, God will never be angry at you again. God will never be angry at you again. Because God has turned away his wrath from you forever because he has credited you with Christ's righteousness. And once you've been credited with Christ's righteousness, then you have been proclaimed clean by God and it cannot be reversed. It cannot. And therefore, from now on to the day you die, when God looks at you, he sees Christ in you. No matter what you did wrong, today or tomorrow in the future, God sees Christ's righteousness in you and not your sin. And therefore, we can... We cannot be, or God cannot be angry with us. That's why Paul can proclaim in Romans 8, when there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation means that when we sin, we are forgiven. God is not angry at us anymore. Period. His grace towards you and I is inexhaustible. And if that's not amazing, I don't know what is. So let's push the pause button for a second and ask, what does this all mean, Liddell? What are you talking about? What are the implications of this concept of saving grace and enabling grace? And what difference does it make that God's grace is inexhaustible or that God's grace is just the opposite of religion? What difference does all that make? Well, here it is. Here's the bottom line. And if you don't get anything else, get this. Once you realize that God has given you so much grace, then you can turn around and give that same kind of grace to everybody else. Because you can't give it until you have it. And as I said from the start of the message, once you've tasted grace and drank deeply of it, you will never be the same again. And because you will never be the same again, you will always relate to, you, or you will begin to relate to other people with the same amazing grace that God has shown you. And just to be clear, because sometimes people get confused about this, being a gracious person, being a person who experiences grace and, and shows grace does not mean you downplay people's sin. Jesus didn't do that, did he? Remember the story we read earlier? He said, go and what? Sin no more. But he preceded that by telling her what? Woman, has anyone here condemned you? No, she said. Well, then neither do I. He began with grace and then ended with truth. But until you get a grip on grace, the grace that God offers you, 
you will never have the ability to truly extend graciousness towards others. You cannot give away what you do not possess. So in conclusion, let me just say that when we truly understand grace, when, when we see that, that God owes us wrath but has provided us Christ's merit for our demerit, then everything changes. We will begin to see grace operating all around us in our everyday life, in the mundane things, in the highs and the lows, like Bob was talking about earlier. But not only that, we will start to become gracious people, just like Jesus was. We will be people who offer unconditional love and acceptance to others and ourselves whenever we make mistakes. And so let us hold tightly Let us hold tightly to the grace of God because it is truly amazing. Let's pray. God, sometimes when I think of grace, the way you've outlined it in the scriptures and the way Jesus demonstrated it, I I sometimes think it's too lofty for me, Lord. I I, I find it so countercultural to what I experience daily in this life. And yet, that's the way you want us to live, Lord. You want us to live by truth and grace and especially learning how to to trust you to enable us, to trust you to forgive us, to trust you to do all that we cannot do. And so God, I just pray that as everyone leaves today that they would realize that unless they've experienced grace and learned how to be enabled by grace, they will never be able to, to give it out on a daily basis. So let it be so, Lord. By the power of Jesus Christ who lives within us. Amen.